We're talking today about evidence for the resurrection. <clears throat> Will you pray with me? Gracious Lord, we come to this word resurrection, the coming back to life. This is not something that we would expect of ourselves to be able to manage or control. And so, I pray that you'd help us to understand the, the truth of this this morning. Amen. So there we are in Acts chapter 17 to start off today. And when Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis, this little thing is not going, is it? Yes, there we are, thank you. And Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. So whereabouts are we? It's, oh, should we skip past one? There we are. Thessalonica up the top. And so what happens? The other Jews were jealous. So they did what all jealous people do. They rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace. They formed a mob and they started a riot. Well, why wouldn't you if you were jealous? Seems pretty extreme, doesn't it? But anyway, that's what they did, and they rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. And as soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea, which is just down there. I guess they might have gone by, they could have gone by sea, or who knows. But they went to Berea, and on arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now, the Bereans were more noble character than those in Thessalonica. For they received the message with great eagerness and they examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. And as a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. And if you are a tourist, you can go, they put up a monument in Berea, there's a bit closer in and there's a, a full picture of this there. So that's to commemorate, commemorate Paul being in Berea. So from our last week's message on Acts chapter 17, the centrality of resurrection became very obvious to me. That's the literal, physical return to life of Jesus after he was mercilessly slain. And I realised that changes everything. And so I thought, oh, we need to do a couple of messages on this. So we've got today and next week as well. But it wouldn't matter what evidence I produce if the listener is not listening. Because the attitude of the listener is critical, isn't it? If you as a listener are going to get anything out of these two messages, I believe the right attitude to have will be the attitude of the Bereans. And we're reminded that, that the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day. Examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Now, they knew the scriptures. Because if you went to school in those times, if you were lucky enough to go to school, because not everyone could, 
A big part of going to a Jewish school was simply memorizing large bits of the Bible. And so when Paul comes along and he says that Jesus has fulfilled those scriptures, which they've memorized, they were very interested because they've been waiting for the Messiah for a long time and they wanted to check whether what Paul was saying was genuinely backed up by the scriptures they'd memorized. And so I commend that sort of attitude to us all. It's the attitude of having an open and inquiring mind, a willingness to, to put aside your current understanding and, and really look at the information. It's a willingness to look at both sides of the argument, to weigh the factors, to use your words, to use your critical thinking and see which answer most fits the facts. See, these Bereans were not swayed by propaganda. They're not swayed by people who shout out, this is my opinion. They weren't swayed by emotive slogans. They weren't swayed by people attacking them. If, if you disagree with me, I'll attack you. By people unwilling for you to have a different opinion from them. And they were not too lazy to think for themselves. They're not too lazy to go to the original sources themselves, not too lazy to take whatever time it takes to do the research. They weren't scared to go against the crowd, against the party line, against the ruling ideology of the day, because they were anchored in God's word. And their only concern was, am I reading this word right? Am I understanding it right? And there's a great need for that in this world of many, many truths, to have this Berean spirit of inquiry to find the truth. One of my sources for this message is Dr. Sean McDowell, and he's the son of Josh McDowell, who wrote Evidence which demands a verdict. And he's worked with his dad and they've updated that resource recently. And one of the things he had growing up was his parents said, look, <clears throat> don't worry about doubts, be inquiring, test everything, check it out. Don't just accept what you're told. And we need to hold on to that sort of an attitude because the world is giving up on genuine discussion, isn't it? It's giving up on genuine debate. And it's just become tribes wanting to force their views on other people. We don't want to be like that. And so what happened with this attitude was that the Bereans found the truth. And by contrast, young people these days are not finding the truth. The statistics are quite alarming. Now, obviously, they like to do this more in America than here, so we've got American statistics. But according to studies over there, 20% of high school kids have contemplated suicide over the last year, and about 8% have even tried it. They say that 12% of kids are lonely, 25% feel unfulfilled in life, and nearly 50% say they are stressed out. The kids are struggling with depression, feeling lonely, feeling rejected. 
and they, they've got a name for it, they call it relational deprivation. Relational deprivation is one of the primary characteristics of the younger generations these days. So it means that even our kids are influenced by non-relational, fast-paced and secular society. It's from the early age they begin this message, you know, life is about you continually pursuing your own gratification, pursuing your own success, your own career. And of course to do that you have to be extraordinarily good looking, have to have money, and you have to be willing to uh, go with the flow, a little bit of moral compromise, which gives us a world for them which has abandoned hope in anything beyond tomorrow. Because God is rejected in favour of doing what's right for me. And this is a scary statistic. The majority of youth, 81%, have adopted this view. All truth is relative to the individual and his or her circumstances. Which means what's true for you may not be true for me. A young woman said one day after hearing Sean McDowell speak, she said, we like his stories, but that's just his truth. I, I don't want to judge him, but I have a different truth. And these days, truth is whatever works for you. Rather than the classical view of truth as truth is reality, or truth is something which is real. So these days, if it works for you, it's right. And what does that mean? It means that truth is accountable to you. You are not accountable to truth. So it's important to note, in the face of this way of thinking, we'll get the next one please. Oops, too far. That before anyone can grasp the transforming power of the resurrection of Jesus, You've got to realise that the resurrection is an objective fact. It's not a personal preference. One of the foremost Christian scholars in this area, N.T. Wright, says, there's a deep irony here because truth is under attack on all sides, even as we're insisting on more and more truthfulness in terms of record-keeping and checking up on one another. And I think it, it's like this, people have given up on objective truth, but you still need people to be truthful for society to function effectively. So what's left? We have to make them truthful. We have to keep them truthful by making laws to keep records, increasingly more records of every part of every process. Well, we need to keep saying truth does exist. We need to do it lovingly. Because while people are clearly turned off by arrogant assertions, this is the truth, you've got to do this, they do respond positively if you talk about it in a loving way. So how can you help people see that Jesus' rejection, Jesus' re resurrection is objective reality? And it simply can't be true for one person 
and false for another. Well, we need to remind people that reason is still a valid pathway to truth. Reason is still more important than your feelings. And the Bible was written upon the premise that people, despite their sinfulness, can have truthful beliefs about God. 1 John 2 verse 21 I have, written, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. In Acts 2.36, Paul says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. You can know for certain. And Paul, he was a great practitioner of reasoning. Reasoning was a key method he used to bring people to truthful bliss in Acts 17.2. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths, reasoned with them from the scriptures. He reasoned with them from the scriptures and from his personal experience of Jesus and from his consultation with the apostles who had an even better personal experience and he applied reason to history. And so some 2,000 years later, so must we, if we want to get to the truth of it. We need to understand something called historical reasoning. There's a guy, Wolfhart Pannenberg, who is a professor of a university in Munich, and he says, whether the resurrection of Jesus took place or not is a historical question. And the historical question at this point is inescapable, and so the question has to be decided on the level of historical argument. But not everybody agrees with that these days. Mental gymnastics coming up. The postmodernists say, knowledge of the past, that's impossible, since the people who wrote down the historical accounts they were just biased and they had their own political or religious agendas and they call that historical relativism. Then you've got the Marxists who say, well, the history is definitely written by the oppressors and we just need to overthrow them and replace them with our brand of oppression, which of course you will love or else. There's no end to where you can go in your mind and your thinking once you discount plain reality. Once you can get rid of common sense, once you can get rid of logic and reason, you can devise any of a number of ways of ignoring historical reality. And that's the point. That's where the rubber meets the road. Historical reality. And what kick-started this worldwide Christian religion was understanding that a historical person it was embedded in a culture and a time and a place had come back to life. And so in order to check that out, you need to check it out in the same way you check out any historical fact. You'll need to use and employ the techniques of historical investigation. Now, 
science likes to put its finger in the pie here and let's not confuse them because the scientific mindset basically says it's impossible for someone really to come back to life and so we're going to judge your historical facts by what our science says is possible and then history says well hold on let's do our historical research and let's let the determination of what actually happened rest on the evidence we find, not on your preconception that it's scientifically impossible. And Dr. William Lane Craig notes, think about this, in the realm of science, dead men, that dead men do not rise is a generally observed pattern in our experience. But... If the historical evidence makes it reasonable to believe that Jesus rose from the dead, then it's illegitimate to suppress that evidence simply because all other men have just remained in their graves. And Michael Lacona says, what science has shown is that a person is not going to rise from the dead by natural causes. But that doesn't apply to Jesus' resurrection since we're not claiming he came back to life through a natural process, we're claiming God raised him from the dead. And historical investigation is not too worried about how it happened, but just explaining what happened. And so, historical, where do you get historical information from? Documents. More specifically, the documents of the New Testament. And because the New Testament makes these claims that God's intervened in human affairs, those people who don't like it have taken their bazookas and they want to challenge how reliable those documents are. So it brings us to the question, how do you evaluate the reliability of the documents you have in your hands or on your devices? Well, one of the things you do is you look for the date of that document. And the closer the document is to when it was written and to the events that it happens, the better. Because there's less time for people's memory to become unreliable and there's more chance for people saying, hold on, I was there. No, that's not how it happened. And the second thing we've got to consider is hand copying. Before printing presses, Kindles, PDFs, emails. Every manuscript had to be written out by hand first when they wrote it and then when there was a copy after that. And the way you got a book was you bought it from someone who took the time to write every word down by hand. Which as you can imagine was a very expensive proposition and reserved only for a very small percentage of the population. The rich governing class and the clergy in particular. So we don't actually have any of the original documents by the original authors because, you know, moth and rust dust corrupt. They've been decayed, they've been lost. And so that means we have copies and copies of copies prepared by and handed down by a very specialist industry, the scribes and the copyist industry over a period of 2000 years. And we check their reliability by confirming 
Well, their reliability is confirmed by how many of them they are. So the more copies you have, the more you can check one against the other and see if you've got the exact form. And then if you're going to evaluate the reliability as of the New Testament as, as historians do, you can use the same standards as they use in the courts. In the US judicial system, it says that a document is authentic if it's in such condition as to not look suspicious. It's in a place where it ought to be, if it's authentic, and it's been around for 20 years or more. And so, legally speaking, you can take a Bible in to a court of law and it is an official, it is a, a reputable and acceptable document. And then there's a question of archaeology. Does what archaeologists find back up the New Testament manuscripts? Well, they find bits of papyri here and there, uh, but the archaeological finds have led one of the foremost biblical archaeologists, William Albright, to say, we can already say emphatically there's no longer any solid basis for dating any book of the New Testament after AD 80. In other words, we can say historically they're all written before AD 80. And then they take a sceptic, Dr. John A.T. Robinson played a key role in something called the Death of God movement in England. He was a sceptic. He said, well, I'll check it out. And he looked at it and he was stunned at the scholarly laziness, the unexamined assumptions and the willful blindness of previous researchers. And the sceptic worked out that all the New Testament books had to have been written before AD 64. He put Matthew between 40 and 64, Mark between 45 and 60, Luke between 57 and 64, and John between AD 40 and 60. So the documents were written really close. It means that one or two of the Gospels could have been written as early as seven years after Jesus died. And at the latest, they're all composed amongst eyewitnesses and people who were around at the time. We're saying, well, right. of course we expect that, it's the Bible. What about other things? How do we compare with other widely accepted ancient works? Well, did you know that most, most ancient works have a gap of 700 years? I'll have to get you... 700 years between the earliest document with a couple of the big ones that Plato and Aristotle, we think everyone accepts Plato and Aristotle. The earliest documents for them are in the 1400s, 1500s. How does that compare with the Bible? The next one. By contrast, we have some papyri fragments dated within 40 to 50 years. It's just a bit here and a bit there, like from the Dead Sea Scrolls. And we have a nearly complete copy of the New Testament within 100 to 150 years of the original composition, just the Chester Beatty papyri, which in the historical world is just astonishingly close to the originals. Well, you say, okay, well, next slide. What about the numbers of the copies? So in 1973, uh, Josh McDowell found and could document 14,000 manuscripts of the New Testament, and this is now up to 25,000. 
because you know I don't know if you know about the history of these things, but over centuries people have gone exploring and they've got bits of paper and manuscripts and they've taken them back to big libraries spread around Europe and some of them have got stuff stuck in stuck away in storage they've never looked at, they've never catalogued. So there may be still more. As the next slide says is the next nearest competitor, Homer's Iliad, 643. Well, critics say there's too many mistakes to agree what was the original was. If you look at all those things, 80% of the mistakes are simply spelling errors. It's easier to explain that. This guy couldn't spell this word. That guy could. And whilst there is a handful of minor texts upon which New Testament scholars disagree, there is no textual variation that, that threatens a central Christian doctrine. No. No variation is big enough to create any doubt. And these days, anyone with legitimate authority, because a lot of people say, oh yeah, the Bible's full of mistakes. Anyone with legitimate authority, even if he's a skeptic, will vouch for the authenticity and the integrity of the books of the New Testament. So Frederick Kenyon, one of the greatest archaeologists ever says this, the interval then between the dates of the original compos composition and the earliest evidence becomes so small as to be, in fact, negligible. And the last foundation for any doubt that the scriptures have come down to us, substantially as they were written, is now removed. So, having established that the documents are reliable, we come to the question of eyewitnesses. And this is because the New Testament was written either by eyewitnesses or people who interviewed eyewitnesses. And the accuracy of what you're writing about depends upon how near those witnesses were to the event, both in geography and also in time. So what does, what does the Bible say about this? 2 Peter 1.16 For we didn't follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we we were eyewitnesses. In 1 John 1, that which was from the beginning, I love this one, which we have heard, they heard Jesus speaking, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked at and our hands have touched. I mean, how more of an eyewitness can you get than this? That's what we've, that's what we proclaim concerning the word of life. What about Acts 1.3? After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs. They haven't passed them on to us, but the apostles got many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 minutes, 40 days, and spoke about the kingdom of God. In Acts 2.32, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. John 19, the man who saw it, the man who saw it, has given testimony and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth. 
and he testifies so that you also may believe. And Luke 1, many have undertaken to draw up an account of these things that have been fulfilled amongst us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. And with this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated, see, he's investigated carefully everything from the beginning. I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent lover of God, Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. And one more from Acts where Paul's before Festus and he said, I'm not insane, most excellent Festus. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. The king's familiar with these things and I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. Everybody knew. And then we say, well, that's the positive eyewitnesses. What about the hostile guys? You know, myths, legends or inaccuracies, they can be ruled out because these accounts of the Bible are circulated in the presence of knowledgeable and hostile opponents. The Christian message was presented in synagogues in the very teeth of opponents who could have discredited the case for Christianity if they could. And Paul's defending the gospel before King Agrippa and Roman official Festus and was able to say, as we just read, the king is familiar with these things and I can speak freely to him because it was not done in a corner. You see, if the events they're talking about were widely known and even those who are hostile to those events couldn't refute them, that gives enormous credibility to those reports. So a few comments before we finish today about confirmation of these things from archaeology. Because you see, you can test ancient documents by comparing things they talk about with your known historical or scientific facts. For example, Sir William Ramsey is a geographer who said, look, I'm going to do a geographical map of Asia Minor in the time of Paul. And he compared his archaeological research, he went round, toured around, found stuff. He compared it with Luke's record in the book of Acts and he found it in the reference to 32 countries, 54 cities and nine different islands that Luke didn't make a single mistake. Historically completely accurate. In another find, William Albright has shown that the court where Pilate tried Jesus was the court of the Tower of Antonia, the Roman headquarters, and there was a big tower very close to the temple so they could race in and save the day if they needed to. They found with a fair degree of certainty the Pool of Bethesda, and in 1990 the burial ground and the ossuary, the actual bones kept in a box of Caiaphas, the Jewish high priest, were found in Jerusalem. Independent backing up of data in the Bible. So hopefully you're gaining a sense today of the complete reasonableness of the resurrection of Jesus. 
You don't have to separate your reason from your personal religious experience. You don't have to separate the sacred from the secular. And embracing the truth of this can change your worldview, your understanding of how life really works. Because the resurrection of Jesus is the cornerstone to a worldview that gives a proper perspective to all life and death. And the resurrection makes it clear that no matter how devastating our struggles, no matter how deep our disappointments and troubles are, they're only temporary. No matter what happens to you, no matter the depth of your tragedy or the pain you face, no matter how death stalks you and your loved ones, the resurrection promises you a future of immeasurable good. And although there will be natural grieving over loss, having a foundational understanding of the resurrection will give you an end point, a truth to focus on, to train your mind to trust in, to live out of, which will carry you on until one day you have your own resurrection into glory. And we need to do something, as it says in Romans 12 too. You need to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You need to feed your mind with this. And remember Paul's heavenly perspective in Romans 8. I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, please help us to be like the Bereans. They wanted to know the truth. They actively searched out the truth. And they weren't afraid of what they might find. They were not worried they might have to change their thinking or their habits. They were not embarrassed that they might have to do an about-face and look a bit stupid. They realised that truth was the pearl of great price for which everything else could be dispensed with in order to obtain it. And they understood that living out of the truth of the resurrection is the greatest price of all. Our sins are forgiven because Jesus rose. We have the Holy Spirit within us. We have an eternity with the Christ before us, with our resurrected new body. Lord, we believe in the resurrection. We know it changes everything. Amen.